This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is proudly sponsored by HappyTummy.ie, the exclusive distributor of BioGaia probiotics for babies. That's right. And as parents ourselves, we know how crucial it is to prioritize our children's health. BioGaia probiotics have been clinically proven to support digestive health and reduce the duration of crying in babies experiencing colic. Absolutely. And HappyTummy.ie makes it incredibly convenient for parents to access these products. Amazing. So for all your probiotic needs, head on over to happytummy.ie. And Baby Tribe listeners can enjoy a 10% discount on all products at happytummy.ie with the code BABYTRIBE10. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. My name is Afif Al-Kafash and my co-host is um, scrolling on her phone as we speak. You don't have to tell people that. I was waiting to be introduced to Afif. Katie Mugan, nursingmama.ie. And last week you kept going on about your role as a public health nurse that I didn't get to do my piece about the vaccinations. So I'm going to start today's episode talking about vaccinations. He's just rubbing it in there. He just hates when I take off on my little rants. Yes. And I actually was paying attention and I learned, actually, I learned a lot, uh, to be honest with you. Um, Joking aside, I did not appreciate the thoroughness of the checks that were done in the community by the public health nurse. So hats off, huge respect for the work that you all do in the community. Oh, that's very good. I'm sure all the public health nurses will be delighted to hear this when they're tuning in. Yes. Anyway, what we're going to talk about today, and by the way, we have another fantastic guest for you um, at the end of this um, chat, is the kind of vaccination schedule that is currently in flux and is hopefully due to change soon. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So What vaccinations do babies get? And I'm not going to go into them in great detail, but just to sort of say that your encounters with the GP will be complementary to all the public health nurse checks that we discussed in um, last week's episode. So the first time you meet your GP for vaccinations will be at two months of age and they will get a range of vaccines. So they'll be vaccinated against pneumococcal infections, um, meningitis B infections, rotavirus, and they also get a six in one that sort of has um, a, a combination vaccine against diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, haemophilus, influenza, polio, and hepatitis B. So these are all organisms that can cause significant and serious infections in babies. So we would both highly recommend that babies do get these vaccinations and continue with the schedule. At four months of age, they also get um, sort of boosters of the vaccines that we've already mentioned. And they also get the same at six months of age. So four, sorry, two, four and six months of age. At 12 months, then they get a new one called the MMR, which stands for measles, mumps and rubella. And again, there has been a recent surge in cases of measles because people are sort of moving away 
from getting the vaccine. Measles can cause serious infections in babies. Now, thankfully, most of them are mild. However, a subset of babies can get significant infections that can be quite um, detrimental. So I would strongly advise that be, that um, parents give that. And also they get a meningitis B vaccine. And then at 13 months, they also get another haemophilus influenza and a meningitis one coupled with a pneumococcal vaccine. Beyond this, then the school system takes over and the next lot of vaccinations happen at four to six years of age and then again at 12 to 14 years of age. But that's sort of looked after by your school. Anything you want to add to that? No, I would just say just make an informed decision. So don't make a decision regarding vaccines on something you've heard from family members or you've heard in the playground. Um, Or Facebook. Or Facebook. Like you will see people that will say that they feel that this, the vaccine caused whatever uh, issues with their child. If you have questions, then I am 100% um, in agreement. Look and uh, look up research evidence-based information with regards to them. But also your GP is a great source to have a full-blown conversation with them. If outside of that, there is a vaccination officer that again, you can have a full-blown conversation with that will tell you all the research to support these vaccines. We have seen, and we are very lucky to see a huge decrease in really sick infants because of this, uh, because of our vaccination schedule. So as a healthcare professional, I'm very pro but it's all about informed consent. So you make an informed decision regarding your child um, for the vaccines that you choose. What I will say is just regarding the um, rotavirus, just be aware that it is a live vaccine. So just make sure you good hand hygiene for yourselves afterwards when you're dealing with any nappies. Yeah, great pointers there. And I also wanted to bring up the chickenpox vaccine that is currently not part of the routine vaccination schedule, although hopefully it will be coming on soon. I'm always asked as to whether I should give my baby the chickenpox vaccine. And my advice is that at the moment, unfortunately, you have to pay for it. If you can afford it, then I would strongly advise you to get it. When my son was born in Canada more than 12 years ago, that was actually part of the routine vaccination schedule in Canada. And I can tell you that he got it and we gave it to my daughter as well because we felt that it was um, a good thing to do, especially that we were both health healthcare workers and get exposed to nasty things all the time. They have been to so many parties where has then been a major breakout of chickenpox and they have not had any symptoms in any of those. And it's really well worth it because yes, it is a self-limiting condition, but it can be a pain in the hole sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. And as a, like as a peds nurse, we, I would have seen very sick kids from uh, chicken pox. And again, it may not be that common, but we see some very sick. And over the last year, we've seen some kids um, in all the peds hospitals being very, very ill with chicken pox. So look, my first three ended up going through it and I would have always considered it's just a normal, you know, childhood illness that you have to get through. My first was actually fine. He got it, would you believe, three days after Lily came home from uh, being born. So not only did he have to deal with having a new sister, he also got the chicken pox on top of it. But it wasn't until my second daughter, until my second child, till Lily got it when she was about three, we were about to go. We were actually just a bit before going on holidays. And she got a horrific dose. She was really, really ill with it. Um, she was on antibiotics to cover um, infection of the wounds. I, I, if I'd known she was going to be as bad, 100%, I would have said she was getting the uh, vaccine. Um, and then my third got it pretty much the same time. They got it together. So when it came to Jack, 
I was like, no, no, I'm getting it. But I will say it's very expensive. And if I had to do four, I would question it at the time because it was so expensive. I am delighted if it does come into the schedule. I think it is warranted in Australia, the States, you've even said Canada, it is part of the vaccine schedule. I think it will reduce the amount of um, time of kids being out of school. It will reduce, obviously, work. And we have to take that into consideration. For me, I just couldn't risk being out of work that long, trying to look after. And if we'd gone through, um, if you had to go through four kids, that could be months of being out. So I'm all in favour of the chickenpox vaccine. And that is a lovely segue to another virus that we're going to talk about that currently does not have a vaccine. And that is virus that is responsible for the majority of coughs, colds and flus and snuffles and admissions to the paediatric hospitals over the winter months. And we're kind of at the time where it's beginning to ramp up. And that is respiratory syncytial virus or RSV for short. So tell us about that nuisance bug. Um, so Katie. thanks, Afif, because I can never pronounce um, pronounce it in total. I always refer to it as V. So it's probably the most common cause of bronchiolitis and pneumonias in very small kids. For a lot of kids, it will just be a very easy, mild virus that will have no issues. What you'll see is that most kids under the age of two will be exposed to it. You don't generally see adults and older kids suffering too severely with it happens any time from the winter season comes in. So from September on to April, depending on how our winter goes, we will see an increase in RSV uh, cases. Most are mild. You'll see them with coughing, sneezing, colds, runny noses is generally how they present. Um, you might see that they could be six to seven days before you see the full onset of the symptoms. Bronchiolitis, usually this is where you've got inflammation of the bronchioles in um, in the lungs. And this can be quite serious in the smaller age, um, smaller age kids. So under six months, it's really heightened. It can be still under a year, but it generally leads to or kids um, or small babies with any underlying lung or heart conditions um, or anyone with a, a weakened immune system are more likely to have serious effects from it. A lot of children will be able to maintain if they can feed well and maintain their feeding, if they're not respiratory compromised in that they're not working really hard and parents will say to me how can you tell if you're if, if they're really sick or when I need to see the GP if a child is under uh, two months they should be seeing by, seen by a medical practitioner either way if they're anyway sick if your child has the reduction in wet nappies where they've, uh, they're have they not having what we'd expect of six plus wet nappies in a day, they should be reviewed. If they have no wet nappies at all in 24 hours, definitely need to be seen. If their respiratory rate, so how many breaths are taking in a minute are kind of up between the 50s and 60s, then they should be looked at. Looking at your baby themselves, how do they appear? Sometimes they don't seem as irritable, um, but what you'll notice is they're a bit more fatigued. You might no- notice what we call, refer to as nasal flaring. The nose kind of inflames out at the nostrils. If you look at the trachea, um, just at the neck is a been sucked in and then looking at intercostal recession. So what that means is if you look at their ribs and it's been sucked in as they breathe, that's all indicating to us that your baby's working quite hard and they do need to be seen. If they're not feeding well, either breast or bottle, again, to be seen, if they're highly irritable, they need to be seen. So for a lot of it, there is no antibiotics that are going to do anything for this virus. It's about letting it work out of the system, but they may need respir- they may need respiratory support um, or they might need um, hydration support. Yeah, so um, the treatment for RSV is supportive. So if your baby is able to feed, if your baby's breathing isn't too laboured, as Katie described, then you could manage it at home. But if you're ever concerned, do consult with your healthcare provider. Now, although there isn't a vaccine, there is a monoclonal antibody that is available called palivizumab. So what that is, is that it's actually an antibody that can be given to the high risk population through the kind of winter period. And who are the high-risk population? Well, 
We generally reserve this monoclonal antibody or palivizumab to babies that are born extremely prematurely, babies that have certain lung or heart conditions, or babies that have, uh, have significant issues with their immune system. So the thing to remember is that this does not give you long-term immunity. It just gives you temporary immunity that lasts a few months um, over the winter months to kind of tide you over the peak season of the virus. So that's not available to everybody. It's available to a select group, just in case you hear of it. Do you, would you believe I used to give travel around the country, giving that to premature and cardiac and babies with lung conditions? Oh, you were. Oh, wow. Okay. I was one of those nurses. You were one of those nurses. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's an amazing service, I think, because yeah. parents don't have to go anywhere. The actual nurse comes yeah. to the home and administers because it has to be done at a monthly interval because yeah. it wears off. And, and I suppose it's important to say that the reason why we go to these the homes of these kids is to prevent them coming back into hospitals where they are predisposed to picking yeah. up infections. So they're high risk. Yeah. So um, the also important things to remember is that there are things that you can do for your baby to try and limit their chances of getting it, especially if you're a new mom, you're just about to bring a baby home from hospital and that you are worried about the chances of your baby picking it up. Well, the things to do is that you need to make sure that you wash your hands um, often and that try and keep your hands off your face because that's an easy way of sort of transferring um, viruses that may be sitting on your nose because eventually every single person will get exposed to RSV and parents may be carrying it and may be asymptomatic. So try and avoid touching your face and then touching the baby. Obviously avoid close contact with sick people. Don't let people pass your baby like pass the parcel. Um, I'd strongly kind of advise against that, especially during the winter months and kissing your baby and things like that. And don't be afraid of saying, no, this is your baby and you need to kind of be um, protective uh, of them. I think parents are kind of better actually now, Fief. Now, because I think COVID in ways worked to give parents the power to say, to empower parents, I should say, to say to people, actually, no, don't handle my baby or I don't feel comfortable. You know, because before you nearly felt by the older generation, if you turned around to a grandparent and said, sorry, would you mind washing your hands? They'd nearly scowl at you as if, excuse me, I'm not dirty. Whereas now we understand how significant hand hygiene is for prevention of transfer, uh, transmission of infections. So I think everyone's kind of willing to kind of go absolutely and accept what parents say. And I think that is one of the benefits of our experience um, with COVID is that COVID demonstrated that if you do adhere to these um, things that I've mentioned, I mean, RSV was pretty much eradicated for a couple of years. It's now coming back. Yeah. Um, but that shows you that these seemingly simple steps do actually work in prevention of the spread of viruses, wiping surfaces as well, and also staying, homes when, staying home when you're sick. And look, I'm going to say this because... You can't beat yourself up. I see parents all the time um, with babies that end up with RSV and they kind of wonder, oh my God, what did I do? To, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. We have to live our lives at the same time. And if you've got another child in the house, they are like Petri dishes. Like there is no stopping it. What you can do is try to wet them to wash their hands and like try to ensure as good a hand hygiene and respiratory hygiene as possible. However, we're dealing with little people and they're going to cough and snot and like go all over their siblings. Um, we do our best. We have to live in the moment. We have to to live our lives. So it's unfortunate that sometimes you can do the best, best in the world to prevent these things and your child will still get it. So um, with the best will in the world, this virus is really spread yeah. easily. And we actually personally had a very scary experience with, with Faisal in Canada, where he, even though he was breastfed, even though we stayed at home, did everything I just asked you to do, 
he got a really bad RSV infection that led to him being admitted to hospital and nearly going on the ventilator for a few days. Um, but thankfully he didn't and he kind of got away um, without needing it. But he was very, very sick. And one thing to actually worth mention is that there's a cough that could linger for a few weeks after the infection. And that doesn't mean that the infection is still there. It's just the kind of airways and um, the bronchioles or the little airways or tubes in the lungs are still kind of hyperactive and they still contract and lead to coughing that can persist for a few weeks after. You nearly can't miss a bronchiolitic cough. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I hope you guys found this helpful and we are going to move on to our guest now. And I'm really, really excited for our next guest. Myself and her actually have a special relationship in that when I launched my first art exhibit last year trying to promote breastfeeding, I have asked this guest to partner with me and share some of her beautiful poetry with me during the art exhibit. And she thankfully obliged. And we have been good buddies ever since. So who is it, Katie? We have Maria Tempany join us today, who is a mom of three small kids and a medical doctor from Dublin, whose passion for poetry has led to her publication of three best-selling poetry books, A Mother's Birth, A Love So Strong and On Borrowed Time. Maria shares her beautiful words on Instagram under the alias The Rhyming One. Her relatable motherly musings have proven to resonate widely, offering support and comfort and reassurance to parents worldwide. So Maria, welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast. We are delighted to have you on as a guest. And I was just telling um, our listeners earlier on how we first met. Ah, uh, well, thanks for having me. And yes, I am delighted to be here today. And yes, I loved when we first met. <laughs> so I kind of slid into your DMs, didn't I? That sounds so wrong, Afif. I know. <laughs> it does. But I remember I had heard of you before because a friend had bought one of your art pieces and had shared it with our mummies group and I thought it was lovely. And then I had bought one. So and you, I had had a lovely piece of yours, one of your Diad collection, actually, and it's gorgeous. But then, yeah, then I just got a message from you saying hello and would you like to collaborate on something? And I thought it was a great idea. So, yeah, that was kind of how it started. But I remember telling my husband I was going over to this guy's house and he was kind of like, where are you going? <laughs> yes. And I was equally telling my wife, I said, like, I've, you know, I've, I've invited a girl over to my house. I hope you don't mind. He's like, what, what now? But anyway, it's all very innocent. And all we, very innocent. we might chat about um, your beautiful poetry in a little while, but Perfect. you're um, many, many things. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, my name is Maria Tempany and I am, I'm from Dublin and I'm a mom. Um, I suppose that's usually the first thing I say now as it's what I always wanted to be. And that's kind of the most important part of who I am, I feel at present. Um, I am mom to Johnny, who is four. He'll be five in August. Little Edie, who was three in May. And then baby Leo, who was born in January this year. And so I say it's the most important part of who I am, but I suppose a big part of what I'm about is remembering that we're not just or just a mother or um once we enter the world of parenting that there's there's lots more to us um I'm a doctor by profession I studied medicine in Trinity and went on to do GP training so I'm a fully qualified GP and I also do occupational medicine um what else you are a woman of many talents <laughs> I don't know about that I love the way you say what else I was like oh my god how much have you encompassed in your life to date I don't know. Um, and and um, we, we'll talk a, a little bit about that at the end. But tell us about what prompted you to start writing the beautiful poetry that you started doing. 
Thanks. Yeah. So I like always liked poetry. When I was younger, I always wrote poems. And I remember in school, in secondary school, my my best friend, Caroline, uh, I used to come in in the mornings and be like, I wrote this poem and she'd have to listen to them all. Uh, usually about unrequited love the whole way through my teens. <laughs> Multiple poems on that. Um, and I used to I write them for different occasions. I remember reading one at my granddad's funeral when I was about 14. And then I suppose college happened and it was busy time and didn't really write as much then. Um, but the arrival of the children really, really brought it back. So when I had my, when I was pregnant, I started writing again. That was one of the first of my kind of baby series of poems about just kind of a poem with wishes to my new unborn child. And then, yeah, once they came, it was just like the floodgates opened and it was my way of expressing the the myriad of widely variable emotions that accompanied me and continue to do so along this journey. That, I mean, it's it's amazing. And I actually read all three books because even before we met and I sort of came across you on Instagram and I was in the midst of trying to promote breastfeeding through art. And a lot of your pieces initially were celebrating that relationship and ce- celebrating um, motherhood and parenthood. And you give a lot of shout outs to dads as well, which which I which I appreciated as well. Um Taking it back to when you first became a mum and a parent and, you know, even having a medical background, and we've touched on this a few times before in various episodes, did you feel prepared for having your, your baby? Yeah, it's always it's it's always a good question. And it's something that I, I do talk about quite a bit because I think most things in life I feel like I've always been prepared for or a little bit of work. I've worked hard at something. It's It's gone my way or I've, you know, I, I firmly believe that you work for something and it, it, it happens. But parenting is very, very different. <laughs> and um, you can, so I kind of, I think I thought I'd be fine. That was a lot. I, I thought I'd be a natural mom. I always wanted to be a mom. So I, I found pregnancy. I was quite sick the first time. But overall, I, I, I thought it would be fine. And then baby came and it was a very different story <laughs> um that I was also one of the first of my I'm one of three one of four I have three sisters so I'm one of four girls but I was the first of my sisters and the first of most of my friends to have a child so I had nobody kind of close to me to to compare to um and I guess it just I mean it turns your whole world upside down in the most wonderful way but the most challenging way too so despite being a doctor and lots of people would have said you'll be fine sure you see this every day and um, that just really wasn't the case. And I think sometimes as a, as a medic or with any healthcare, any healthcare professional, you it's very different when it's your own children and you think you should know, um, but often you don't and you, your judgment can be um, impaired, I suppose, in that regard too. I definitely agree. I think as a mom, you think you know it all as a professional and you can give people all the advice. But when it's you on the other side, we question everything. We go, oh God, is that the right decision? Is it not? Am I doing enough? How did you manage between when you were in that, like when you were in that phase of new motherhood? Was it through the writing only or did you build that support network around? Yeah, I suppose it was, was when did I have my first in 2018? I I joined local mummies groups, which were amazing at the time. Like I found a lovely group in the local area, kind of at Front Church Town area, a lovely group of mums that had babies the same age and that were breastfeeding also. Because again, I think it was great to have support of women at the same stage that were feeding the same way and going through the same kind of, of struggles or uh, leaps and everything like that. So I found that really helpful. The writing was obviously very therapeutic too. I was going to ask you, I met your mum. She's a formidable woman <laughs> and um, I know she was a midwife. Yes. And a strong breastfeeding 
advocate. And did you find that influenced you or helped you in any way? Totally. And I should have said that when you asked about supports for mom. <laughs> um, should have came straight away. But yeah, no, mom, my mom's amazing. Yeah, she's a, a retired midwife and a big breastfeeding advocate. So, I mean, when she she's from Monaghan and my dad's from Sligo, but they both moved to Dublin and had their kids here. So didn't have support locally. And she'll say when she had her first baby, that initially she really struggled. And with the feeding, she was um, really sticking to the clock, the four hourly feeding, waiting for the four hours and wondering why the child was screaming and she didn't know what to do. And she got in touch with the Lech League at that time and got wonderful support. And they've become some of like some good pals of hers. And she had a great journey through all four of us then with feeding. And thankfully it worked out well for her. Um, So that was a great support. So I suppose in my for, for me, my plan was always to breastfeed. I never anticipated that it might be challenging. And I um, I guess I, I was very lucky in that regard that my baby latched. I it, The feeding went well and it was great to have the support of mom and the Lech League as well. And lots of lots of other local support breastfeeding groups were, were great. And what do you think surprised you the most in the kind of early days. About feeding or about motherhood in general? About motherhood in general. Yeah. Um, the sleep. The sleep. Like, <laughs> and the lack, lack thereof. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the the sheer sleep deprivation and how everything is so much harder when you can't, if, if, if you're not rested. That the, the smallest hurdles seem like the biggest when, you've, when you haven't had sleep. And the anxiety. The anxiety was a real thing. And again, I wouldn't have been an anxious person pre-children but I definitely feel post post babies that I, I would be quite anxious and you're like you just want them to be fine and for everything to be okay and that worry I suppose always there the feeling for me I was lucky it was fine I didn't have pain the and I had good support in terms of my mom and local groups and my husband is brilliant and like but you still you doubt everything the, so that was. I think uh, it's just a really overwhelming time in, yeah on your first I think first is because it paves the way for you to uh, into motherhood, whereas totally. on your second and third, although it's challenging more so because you've got more kids to organize to and get. Yeah. But I think it's just at least you have an idea of what's ahead. Of course. Totally. And I'd say that to everyone that like the second I now feel like I permanently want a not to six month old. People laugh at me. I, I think I have to be done with my three, even though I'd love 10 sometimes of a not to six month old only. <laughs> You say it like me, I say it all the time. I'd have 10 newborns, yeah. but the toddler phase, it's like two to five. I know, and I'm really struggling with that at the moment with my three-year-old. I'm finding it really hard. I love the newborn. The second and third time round, the newborn were effortless. But first time round, it is so hard. And I very much will always say that because people, when I say, oh, it's so easy this time, they're kind of look, looking at me if, they, if it's their first. And I said, no, no, first time's different. <laughs> um, but... Second and third time around the newborn, which we're just coming out of now because Leo is six months and already I'm noticing, you know, they're more active. They're like, they're just that bit harder to bring everywhere with you. Even they have a personality. They have a personality. They start moving. <laughs> Leo, though, I mean, I've, I've met Leo a few times and, you know, we, we did a shared sort of exhibit together yes. and you, you had him with you and he's. He is so cooperative, isn't yeah. he? He's, he's yeah. brilliant. And he um, even my daughter, when we were at the breastfeeding awards thing and you had him, he's he's so pleasant. He loves being out and he loves being around. It's because well, that's where he's been. He's, yeah. uh, once, I think once he knows he's with me and maybe he's thinking if I play ball, I'll keep getting brought. Yeah. <laughs> he's very yeah, well exactly. travelled at six months. Exactly. He's been to Oxford. He's been to Cambridge. Amazing. He's been all yeah. over the country. He's, he's chilled out though. <laughs> yeah. No, he is chilled for the large part. But I suppose, again, my approach this time is 
is different in that I have him everywhere with me. Anytime he makes a noise, I kind of pop him in the sling or I feed him. And I guess I haven't given him the chance to get unchilled. <laughs> well, do you know, that's actually really, um, really like I actually read a study. I'm going back now, but I read a study actually about how um, infants um, in the African communities, because they are connected to a caregiver, a family member or somebody all the time, they've never heard a colic or reflux. They've never heard of a crying infant because they're connected. Now, obviously, they do cry to communicate, but minimally in comparison, sometimes I think we try to conform to society about what a baby should do. They should sleep for a number of hours. They should feed at a specific time. And I think by when we, I think as a first time parent, we try to be perfect. We try to be like the book that that's when we get these babies that are more unsettled or we, I think it's everything combined that totally to it's such a mix like and it's it's all the conflicting advice like those books are there there are professionals that are giving that type of advice you wait don't feed that baby they've been fed an hour ago they you know forgetting that it's not just food they're getting you know they're getting comfort they're getting yeah it's there's so much conflicting advice and there's so many opinions and everything has a place but it's just you can't you I can't think take one it thing, all in. One thing we need to debunk, and I think we all um, sitting here agree with, is you can't spoil your child by keeping them in your proximity. In fact, a lot of studies demonstrate that if you do implement this trained crying or, mm. you know, regimented schedule, that those babies are more likely to end up being more anxious down the line. You build up high levels of cortisol and that perpetuates yeah. anxiety. Yeah. And in fact, the opposite is true, is babies that are kept close to the mother, babies that have experienced this responsive parenting that you're talking about, bringing the baby with you everywhere, are the babies that end up doing better down the line. And with with, with all our guests so far, the mums that we have interviewed up to now have all gotten back to their businesses very quickly with their small newborns. And you're doing that as well. And the way they do it is that they bring their babies with them, Yeah, you know, and that needs to be accepted as the norm. The norm, exactly. And I think and that's a problem in society, isn't it? That most people, I suppose, it depends on what your work is and what you do, because obviously you can't bring a baby to all scenarios. Um, but I suppose it's just, you know, improvements in the workplace and like the breastfeeding breaks now is a big thing, whether or not they'll be implemented, whether or not they'll be followed, you know, is remains to be seen. But those sort of like adaptations, flexible working, COVID definitely showed the whole, the hybrid approach, the working from home, the, the there's so many things that are changing in the workplace that I suppose need to continue to, to do so. And and do you feel since you have entered motherhood that you've changed your uh, approach to your care as a medic? Definitely. (laughs) Big time. And I would say that pre having my first baby, when you would have the two and six week checks, you know, I'd be nervous about them sometimes because I always felt what I'd learned in the books. This is what you do. You know, you check are the testes down, you check for the red, for the light reflex, you check all these things. But you don't you know, I'd ask, is the mom fine? And hope they said yes and move on. And that was, how bad is it that that was kind of the, you you didn't really know what to expect or how to approach it. And I'd find then afterwards, I remember people coming in, the two, and the two week check is supposed to be like by the book, it's just for the baby actually, whereas the six week check is for the mom and the baby. But I mean, they'd come in with the baby. I just sit down, how are you? And they're like, oh, me? And I'm like, you, how are you? And, you know, often that's all you have to ask for someone to sit and cry. Yeah. And maybe that's all they needed for the 15 minutes of the te- to sit and go, well, actually, I didn't think you were going to ask, but but maybe I'm not so good, you know. And you glance at the baby who's fine at two weeks and, you know, um, well, well, once you know, if they are fine, of course. But um, for the large part, the, the care for the moms is 
is lacking, definitely. Um, so I feel like my approach is much different now. It's very much focused on the parent. And often if they'll come in with dad, I'll say, dad, do you mind just taking baby, stripping baby down and getting baby ready kind of for all the baby parts of it and ask um, and just speak to mom kind of and see how they're getting on. I know many will joke about it, how the six week is just, you know, contraception asked to the, to the mother. And um, yeah, I mean, there's so much. So more. Much more that needs to be discussed. And I think um, when, like, it's probably changing, I think. I think so. I think it's a general, like a lot of it's a generational thing. Yeah. And it is changing, but it'll have to, from a care point of view, it'll have to change back at training and that's yeah. slow as well. And again, with colleagues, we don't, anything I learned about breastfeeding is through my mom and through support groups and through one of my other, one of my best friends, her mom also is a, is a lactation consultant and she would have helped me as well, that it was through that, not through being a doctor. Yeah. So again, when people say, you'd know as a medic, I said, no, I, I, I know a bit because I have other supports, you know. Um, and I think you're right because an infant feeding is a very minimal part of any training. Totally. As nursing, med practitioners there's very little like you can get an 18 hour kind of training on breastfeeding yeah. so what does that give you yeah like, realistically it gives you the outline the basics totally that's about it like you I think a lot of us bring our um, own previous experiences to the table yeah. um, even if, if yourself as a parent you bring an awful lot more and I suppose maybe we're just all more empathetic when we've been through lived experience and we understand the parent on the other side how um, how yeah. upsetting it is like you even said this morning we were talking about um, uh, Faisal when he was unwell you know, yeah, and how yeah. it was terrifying, even though as a medical practitioner, you yeah. knew who was going to be all right. But it's very different when you're on the yeah. other side. Oh, a sick child. It's, it's awful. We had a few runs to Crumlin with the Johnny used to get croup and you'd have all, like, there's nothing, there's nothing like it when, when you go when to you worst case it. scenario. Yeah. You do. And that's the problem. You go to worst case scenario rather than the, the calm mind. Yet for another child, you, you would be calm. Yes. And I try to relate that because again, within my family, there's no other medics and like they'd often ask me things and I'd kind of try to encourage that they see, you know, a separate practitioner obviously that's important, but also that you're not partial, you're not objective when it's a family or a friend, you're, um, you, you don't think the same way you would objectively for, for a patient. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in relation to work, I wanted to ask you about um, going back to work and have you felt supported taking the time off, especially, you know, we always talk about the shortages in GP and things like that. And how did you manage that? And did you feel that you could take the time off? Yeah, and I suppose I I am I'm have been lucky in that regard definitely because my my main employment at present is it's been HSE based so I have had my maternity leave for each of the babies which has been wonderful and I've had that that time and then you have the option of the 6 months and then you have the option to take extra which I I did a bit here and there. I took I took a little bit extra for one and then I had to go back a bit sooner next time. So I feel like I I had those options, um, which I know everyone doesn't have, definitely. And again, when I went back initially, I, I didn't go back full time. I had the option of reducing down hours. I also had an amazing mom who used to bring the baby to me at lunchtime, which I know is in, insane. She's amazing. She's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But she used to bring baby to me and I was able to feed. And then also, again, I was lucky from the feeding point of view that I would have had my own office. I could pump when I wanted. I could, I was able to do all that. Whereas if you're on a busy ward, you mightn't have access to that, to to the break, first of all, to the private scenario, to, to, um, to, to pump or to store, even most, a lot of staff might say they mightn't have access to a fridge, you know, lots of, lots of things like that. But I have been able to to kind of return and to, to reduce hours and with the support of loved ones to kind of make that possible, I yeah. suppose. And I think you're, you're, you're describing a kind of 
very good supportive mechanism when you're working within a kind of bigger employer. But sometimes if you're maybe a kind of sole GP working in a practice, you mightn't have that. You mightn't have that at all. Totally, exactly. So so much of it depends on, and I get lots of colleagues that would have gone back to work a lot sooner because they didn't have that. Um, And that shouldn't be the case. No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, and that's it. And kind of, I find like, you know, especially within within large public sector bodies, people, you know, strategic choices to try and, to try and optimize all those. And can I ask um, a question that we're asking sort of all of our guests? Yes. Finding a work-life balance going forward. How do you think you're going to achieve that? Yeah. (laughs) Tell us, Maria. (laughs) A work-life balance, the, the answer that we're all, what what we're all seeking, the lotto. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's my first go-to. Yeah. Yeah. We're all going to move to the Bahamas. Um, you know, I suppose it's it's making strategic choices and thinking what's best for you and your family and what you can do to make it all work. Flexible working. Um, what else? Work-life balance. Making the most of the downtime and time with family, with loved ones, you, time to do hobbies to, you know, it's... Do you get a break? Do I get a break? Uh, again, I'm lucky with support. I do at the moment. My I, I don't get time without Leo. Um, and... That I suppose I'm getting to a point where I'm finding it a bit hard and it's what I it's what I want. And often I'll talk about this. This is what I want. This is what I've chosen. I know what I could do to get that break and I don't want to do it. I just want to give out about it sometimes. And that's <laughs> okay. That's normal. And, and can I ask, and again, we, yeah. we've sort of explored this theme in, in other episodes. Why don't you want it? Is there guilt there? Totally. There's totally a bit of that. Yes. And it, where's that coming from? Me. Me, only me. I but want is it to, just yeah. you or do you think... It, it is a societal expectations that mums should feel guilty and dads shouldn't. Because we've sort of asked each guest that question. I mean, you're here without but any of your kids. Yeah. And, you know, I'm asking this question just to make a point, but who's minding your babies? Yeah. Mums usually get asked that dads don't. No. Like if, if, we were, if we were interviewing a dad, we were probably less likely to ask, who's minding your kids today I while know. you're here giving us, um, giving us your time? But... We sometimes feel, gosh, who is minding Leo today? So, yeah, you know. I know. And we wouldn't ask, like, yeah, or when dad said they're babysitting tonight, I'm like, hang on. <laughs> yeah. I, I have You're used, parenting. I have, I have used that term to my um, to my detriment, you know. We, yeah. all, we all have. The, yeah. Well, at the moment, yeah, my husband is off at the moment and he is currently walking Leo. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, I wouldn't go far like that. He's gone maybe for the hour and you don't fully... I don't fully relax, even though he's six months now, I should be able to probably do a longer stint, but it's I'm not there yet. I don't think he is yet either. <laughs> I think there's always that kind of pull. Like, I mean, yeah. I would have even said as much as I would wake up and go, that's it. I am over this. We are stopping. Oh, yeah. And he would have been a bit bigger at that stage. But mm. again, I'm only saying it. I didn't necessarily mean totally. I wanted to do it, but sometimes we do feel touched out. We feel a bit totally. overwhelmed. You just kind of go, I just want to be on my own for a few minutes. But we don't necessarily don't want that either. It's like a, a, a fight between your heart and your head. Yeah, it's like you want to know that you can have it, yes. but you might not necessarily avail of it. Yes. And then when they fall asleep on you and it's just heaven. And, that and you look at their of, face. Yeah, I'm like, I want them on me still, cosy, not making any noise. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I want to know that I can leave. <clears throat> I, I think it's the choice. Tea. I want be, to be brought treats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, a, a tiny bit of change in tact. Um, yeah. You've had... A very impressive career to date. You're mm. doing a lot of things, you know, your poetry, your medical career and your social media presence. Um, do you have any mentors that you look up to, um, you know, throughout all of this? 
Yeah, well, I suppose from the from the book point of view, because that was so it was so new, like it was COVID, and I just decided, okay, I'm going to share some of these poems, and went from having like four or five followers, and it gradually, you know, steady growth. Um, initially, I joined kind of a community that was called the Mum Poem Press, and they were based in the UK, and there was lots of different mums who wrote poetry, and that was kind of where initially I kind of had a community of of support, mainly English mums. There were a few Irish as well, but mainly English, and a lot of people shared their poems and kind of supported each other through that. So that was a great starting point. Um, and then it was, you know, it really helped with lots of people in the public eye who would have read a poem they liked and shared it. And then growth happened that way. Um, in terms of other people that I look up to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure lots of people know Jessica Ehrlichs. I think she's fabulous. I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, but she writes beautiful poetry. And I think her, her work is gorgeous, too. Um, there are lots of others similar. And I suppose it's interesting that this would never have been a thing in the past. I think there are a few people writing writing poetry around the world to express parenting or motherhood, which is something that... So the large part of the population will will do, but never really felt they could talk about it previously, maybe that it's a way of expressing that. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's uh, absolutely beautiful. And, and your poetry and you're going to read us a poem, hopefully at the end of this sure. interview. No problem um, <laughs> to go through. We I wonder, though, as well, is it because that we've lost a bit of our society kind of support in that like our parents, if you look back at our mother's generation, they had the neighbours, they would have mm. spoken about parenting a lot, whereas now a lot of first time moms, they don't know their neighbours. Like totally. they might never have met them except to wave passing by. They don't know, like you might be the first in your group to have a kid. Yeah. So it's very different. I think by somebody expressing and them actually hearing your poetry and they go, oh my God, that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. They can connect with you. And that, you know, that's for me what it's all about. Like, yeah, I've books. You wouldn't want to be trying to make money selling books. <laughs> um, luckily, it's not about that. It's a passion more than anything. But um, for me, it's the poems. And when somebody messages, could be the middle of the night saying, I just read this and I'm at floods of tears or this really helped and I was really struggling. Uh, those sort of messages are for me what it's all about. And honestly, I, I get such such a kick out of hearing that, saying that just it helped at a right time. Um, and that's really yeah, such such a comfort. But totally it's a societal thing and a support thing. And that yeah, I guess this way of of communicating, and especially with COVID, these sort of like creators in general, it excelled during COVID. People writing, doing beautiful art. We had maybe time to do it, but didn't have the only way to connect with others was through can, social can media. I, can I yeah. just can I just tell our listeners that she pointed at me when she said art. beautiful art? I did, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And then she said creative on the gram. And that was me. If you... I, think, I think she pointed at you when she said, when she You're said that. Oh, she did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just sitting silent in the middle. Yeah. I feel no. like I'm playing tennis, looking You're... from one to the other. You're all wonderful. But I do think it really did give a space where people felt comfortable sharing that they mightn't have done previously. They would have been maybe too busy out and about and mightn't have like turned inward as much. And while that obviously had, had downsides too, there was lots of positive things created creatively that have came out of that that time and you were kind of finishing up soon but Mm. can I ask do you have any advice to young mums that maybe are about to embark on parenthood that are worried about their kind of dual role of kind of maybe running a business or their career and raising young kids yeah what advice would you have for them that I would always say to to take your time first of all and I know that that's maybe that's can be a hard thing for people to do as well financially if you're running your own business it's hard to take that but to be kind to yourself initially and to seek out support I think that that's key to try whether it's a friend a partner a family member that 
you know, a network is so important to help you you to continue from a business point of view and a parenting point of view. And that if you have an idea, often as well, to not have a fixed view of how you think it might be. I think that's important that to try and acknowledge that it'll be different and to give yourself one day at a time that rather than entering into birth with a with an, a, f- a fixed plan and then into parenting the same. And I think that was something that I struggled with. I had an idea of how it was going to be. And um, it turned out very different and beautiful in many ways, but but challenging too. No, that's that's uh, that's that's a really good message to actually um, have new parents listen to. Um, I want to ask, and you talked about, you know, you have very little time to yourself, mm-hmm. and it's always a struggle to find time. But when you do find time for yourself, what what do you like to do? Yeah, you know, lo- lots of things. I definitely, I, I love life. And I, my pals would always joke, my husband as well, I always would have said, I love love. Like, <laughs> you want to do things and get out and about and be active and, you know, do as, so I think, and that's something that's hard because when you're stuck with, stuck with baby that where you want to be, it's hard to do all those things. But what do I love to do? I love to walk with friends. I love to go for coffee. I love to write. <laughs> um, I love to read. Again, I'd love to read so many books I'd like to read that I don't get to do. And travel, which again, I'm trying to do. As I said, I've brought Leo over to visit friends in the UK there recently, and that was great. But um, yeah, lots of things I'd like to do as well. Well, Amazing. (laughs) Well, the next time you have time for yourself and you don't have a baby stuck to you, um, we'd love to let you know that Eden One, Ireland's leading luxury day spa destination, has kindly gifted you one of their signature packages and are delighted to treat you to an ultimate day spa escape Whenever you have time to Amazing. do that. Amazing. That Katie's sounds fabulous. <laughs> super jealous, but you don't get one, Katie, unfortunately. I know I am <laughs> so jealous. <laughs> oh, that'll be absolutely fabulous. Oh, one of my best friends is a, is a member there and she brought me once and I loved it and I've been dying to go back. So that'll be great. We'll have to rope in well, lots of people go. to mind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And before we finish off, we'd love to hear a poem of yours. No problem at all. I'd be delighted to do that. And I think just because I feel like I've said this a few times today, this is probably a good one to choose. It's called... I thought it would be easy. I thought it would be easy, this life as wife and mother. I never thought I'd lose myself in caring for another. I thought it would come naturally, that I'd take it in my stride. I never thought I'd daily seek a place to run and hide. It's all I've ever wanted, to have babies of my own. I never thought I'd feel so lonely, yet never be alone. And so I want to speak of it, the struggles and the woes, for parenting's not easy, as every parent knows. I want to shout it loud and clear, it's okay if you're sad, it's okay if you're feeling lost, it doesn't make you bad, at mothering, at nourishing, at anything you do. In fact, it makes you human, please don't give up on you. Wow, that was absolutely amazing, absolutely beautiful. And now I'm thinking we need to end every single episode. With, <laughs> are, are you available next week as well? No problem. No yes. problem. <laughs> uh, if we could end every episode on this. Listen, Maria, thank you so much for coming on as a guest. We Thanks are absolutely me. delighted. And I'm sure our listeners would really appreciate the honesty and all the advice and all the stories. So thank you so much. Thank Maria, you. it's been a pleasure. We love having you here. And anyone that's interested, head on over to her Instagram account, The Rhyming One, and you will hear all um, how to avail of her books. And yeah, and all her books are available online as well. 
Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey. Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.